This is Good Together, the podcast that inspires you to create change in the world every day. Keep listening for actionable tips and tricks to incorporate eco-friendly practices into your daily life. We've been featured by Apple as the number one podcast for conscious consumers, and we can't wait to welcome you into our community of changemakers. I'm Lisa. And I'm Laura. We're the founders of Brightly.eco, the new platform for conscious consumers. We believe in supporting all creatures, great and small. And our team of experts show you how to live and shop responsibly by sharing world-changing lifestyle ideas, products, and more. To read show notes from Good Together and to browse all of the planet-friendly goodness that we feature, head to brightly.eco slash podcast. And to help spread the word about the podcast, tap on this episode and share Good Together with your friends and family. A simple text message helps us grow and create change around the world. This episode is brought to you by Sheets and Giggles, a company with a punny name but a seriously sustainable mission to make better bedding for everyone. Sheets and Giggles bedding consists of sustainably made 400 thread count eucalyptus sheets that are static-free, moisture-wicking, use no insecticides or pesticides, and are half the cost of their store-bought competition. Good Together listeners get 15% off at checkout by using the code BRIGHTLY at sheetsgiggles.com. Do better is a common phrase we've all been repeating lately. And the exciting thing is some of the world's top brands in fashion, food, and other consumer products have actually been hearing us. From Apple to Amazon to L'Oreal, companies are throwing their weight and their dollars behind innovations in things like reducing carbon emissions, finding creative ways to recycle items, and more. The issue is how is a consumer supposed to move past the excitement and understand what's exactly going on, who to trust, and more? In this episode, Lisa and I sit down with Trista Bridges, co-author of Leading Sustainably, The Path to Sustainable Business and How the SDGs Changed Everything. Trista has spent years studying household name brands and how their corporate policies are either creating or hindering positive change for the world. In this episode, we also discuss topics like certifications, employee rights, greenwashing, and more. Plus, we get into how you can be a smart consumer when heading to the store and supporting brands who actually do what they say they're going to do. Let's get into it. Okay. Hey, Trista. Welcome to Good Together. Hi. Thanks so much for having me on. So glad to have you. We're so excited. Good to be here. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah, so uh, today's episode is all about how big brands can do better. Um, there's so many different things as it relates to the ethical and sustainable community um, that revolve around big corporations and the impact they can have on our consumption, specifically if they choose to do better. So we're really excited to shine a light on that today. Um, so Lisa, I wonder if you want to just get us started um, by telling folks a little bit about Trista and, and getting into it. We're very excited to have Trista talk with us specifically about this topic because Trista is co-founder of Read the Air, an advisory firm supporting companies to put sustainability at the core of what they do. So she is truly the expert on this specific topic. Trista is also co-author of Leading Sustainably, the path to sustainable business and how the SDGs changed everything, which actually the release day is today. So Trista, why don't you tell us a bit about yourself before we jump into the topic and of course, tell us a bit about your upcoming book. Sure, of course. Um, I, my name is Trista. I actually am originally um, from the U.S. I'm now residing in Tokyo, and I've had a bit of a long and winding road to get here. Um, I lived in France uh, in Europe for many, many years. I also have French nationality, and I moved out to Japan because I was looking for a bit of a change um, professionally and personally. Um, and um, I found it uh, to be a fascinating country. Um, and this question of sustainability for me it really started coming up um, when I was living in Europe. You know, Europe is a, is, is a place that tends to be quite uh, focused around that topic of sustainability. It's people 
um, its laws, it's, it's, it's just its way of being, its, its organizations. Um, and when I came to Japan, it wasn't a subject that was really discussed as much. And so I was really curious about um, how organizations and companies are dealing with this issue. And I was really inspired by what I was seeing in Japan. I think that's changed over the last couple of years. Um, but I kind of set out on this with this idea with my co-founder um, to write this book about the topic. So we spoke with companies around the world in Japan, obviously, of course, as well, about this topic, about how are you tackling the subject of sustainability? Are you actually incorporating it in what you do? Um, and so that's how we came uh, to write the book. That's that's awesome, and it's so it's so important. I know that you we've chatted with you like uh, you have so much experience of kind of international perspective for sustainability because absolutely sustainability does not mean the same things in Japan and Europe in the U.S. Australia and so on and so forth. So that was fascinating, but another topic uh, for another day. So today uh, I wanted to mention uh, before we jump into the topic, uh, um, I think it's a very very important one. Uh, we are talking about large corporations. Operations, right? Think Amazon, IKEA, Apple, L'Oreal, H&M. What are they doing on the sustainability front? Uh, are they doing anything? Are they doing enough? And most importantly, is corporate social responsibility, CSR, right? Is it a real thing or is it mostly greenwashing? But before we jump in, I know we have so many great specific case studies to cover and uh, talk speci about specific companies that have been on the news literally like in the last two days. I'd like to put things into perspective because, you know, when we say large corporations, big corporations, we know that Amazon is a billion or 70 billion trillion dollar company. Actually, yeah, both Amazon and Apple, I think, are a trillion dollar company, but it's very hard to understand what it actually means, right? So when a giant corporation truly commits to uh, and changes its operations, supply chain, etc., it creates a positive impact that even hundreds of thousands of 100% of sustainable companies would not be able to accomplish. Uh, because these corporations, they literally, they are operating on a country level, not on a company level, as you understand in company in a general kind of uh, understanding how we understand what we're used to in terms of company size. These companies create economic and environmental output on a country level. So for example, talking about Apple specifically, it's actually, yeah, I have the exact number here, $1.6 trillion company. Uh, and in 2019, it's... Um, it was responsible for 25.1 million metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions, whatever that means. It's a giant number. And this was actually the same amount as the annual climate pollution from island nations of Cuba and Sri Lanka. So just kind of to put things in perspective and truly to understand an, uh, what an impact, a change in behavior and the sustainability practice of these kind of companies that we will be talking about today, what, what kind of scale we're talking about. So uh, let's start with the three examples ex across three different industries and countries. I know, uh, Trista, you have so many more examples, but I kind of wanted to have three specific sectors and three specific countries. So uh, one example that you've brought up is actually L'Oreal, right? We know it's a big, huge international beauty company. Um, and you've mentioned that they actually came up with a sustainability app. Can you tell us a bit more and kind of just how they're approaching sustainability uh, at L'Oreal in general? So, um, yes, so in terms of L'Oreal, um, they've recently, this, I think this was announced um, maybe a month ago, they've announced this kind of, I guess you could say it's a sustainability score. Um, and what they do, what they aim to do is provide consumers with some perspective around how sustainable a particular brand is on a scale of A to E. Now, this was a little bit inspired of why this A to E ranking. Um, this was inspired by how in Europe they think about energy efficiency on appliances. So if you buy, for example, a washer machine, there's this kind of A to E scale. And so they've basically applied that to sustainability in some way. Um, and they've only applied it in a limited manner to their Garnier brand, um, which is you know, it's very, very popular in Europe in particular. Um, and um, it's only on that brand at the moment. And what we find is that's pretty common where um, companies experiment with rolling out a sustainability initiative in a very limited manner. And then they tend to expand it more broadly. It's a way of them getting kind of control, I would say, over being able to control a 
portion of the company before they expand it uh, more broadly. Um, L'Oreal has over the years been, I would say, in the beauty industry. Certainly, there's been lots of controversy around L'Oreal around various topics, but they've been... Um, um, at the forefront of things like women in science, for example, um, they really are trying to work around this topic of and the sustainability side, and the environmental side, traceability. That's actually very, very important in this cosmetic sector, understanding um, where are the chemicals that we're using coming from? Um, what is the um, what is the impact or what is, I should say, what is the pressure that is applied to the ecosystem in terms of a particular products? Because you know, if you're making um, creams or, or, or makeup or that type of thing, it still uses a lot of resources from nature. So traceability in clean beauty especially is super important. We actually did a podcast about this, um, a clean beauty founder a while back. And I think you know, L'Oreal in particular seems to be making strides. So, you know, all of the information that you've shown um, so far, Tris, is super important. Yeah, absolutely. And I think in addition to traceability, another challenge they have is packaging. And, um, you know, that's a really interesting subject. I actually was talking to someone a while back who represents a sustainable packaging company. And um, this person particularly mentioned, specifically mentioned European beauty companies as really embracing um these, this type of, of packaging. And they're now trying to introduce that here in Japan. Um, so, you know, the, the packaging, the plastic issue, the what do we do um, with, um, with the packaging um, once it's at its end, of, or the product when it's at the end of its, its life, um, that's a real big topic. I know they're really trying to experiment with reusable pieces and reusable parts. Um, we see that across many industry, um, but particularly in beauty. Yeah, absolutely. And I, you know, another company that I think we wanted to kind of jump into, um, that's, you know, really what I'm curious about too. And I was just reminded of it while you're talking about L'Oreal is, is Apple. Um, you know, you were talking about packaging, but we think about all of the waste that encompasses, um, you know, the, the electronics that we use, um, whether or not it's the electronics themselves or the packaging that they come in or, you know, all of the different factors there. And I think, you know, the, the amount of money that Apple possesses right now um, cannot be understated and the amount of influence that they have cannot be understated. I mean, you know, their CEO was just, you know, talking in front of the uh, U.S. Congress about, uh, you know, specific antitrust related things. So it's definitely on the mind for people. Um, but to put it into context, Apple actually is a $1.6 trillion company. Um, and in 2019, it was responsible for 25.1 million metric tons of greenhouse gas emissions. Um, that was about the same that it put out in 2018. Um, but that amount of greenhouse gas emissions is the same as the annual climate pollution um, from island nations, Cuba and Sri Lanka. So this is a huge company. They are saying that they're doing better, but how are they actually doing, right? <laughs> um, I think that it, I think the verdict's still out on that. Um, one thing that I found is interesting is they just announced they were they were going carbon neutral by 2030. Um, as, as people may know um, who are listening in, um, we have the UN Sustainable Development Goals that are set to set for 2030 as well. So 2030 is a big goalpost that a lot of companies are looking at. Um, that's not very far away. So um, to your point, um, they, they, they sounds like they're still generating a lot of um, greenhouse uh, emission, climate emissions and greenhouse gases. So the question is, how do they get there? And so what they say is that they plan to reduce their emissions by 75%. The challenge is they have to do that across every part of their business. Um, and a company like Apple is incredibly complex. So for example, um, their materials, so the materials they use, making sure they're mined and, and extracted in a responsible way and they're not a drag on the environment or things around um, human rights, for example. Um, how they design their, their factories, right? I know that there are several of their factories, especially in the U.S., I believe, um, production facilities are carbon neutral. Um, that may not necessarily be the case in other countries as well. And sometimes you have very different standards across different markets. And so that's quite difficult as well. And then this also brings us into um, the landfill issue as well, um, which you know is also obviously connected to climate, but a huge and massive issue in terms of what do we do with these things again at the end of their life, making sure that they don't turn up in landfills, particularly in developing markets. 
Um, that's, that's a real challenge. And then at the end of all that, kind of capping that off is assessment. So we have to think about how do we know whether they're actually making progress or not? And I think that this is a real um, open question in general, because, you know, there aren't really international standards by say that we could just say, okay, um, that number is absolutely correct. So if Apple says they're doing a good job, we're certain that Apple's doing a good job. We're not really 100% certain of that at the moment. So I think, so hopefully we'll have um, standards that are more agreed upon across countries um, by different companies around the world that are standardized. So if they say we're doing a good job, we know for sure that they actually are. Exactly. No, you said it exactly right, because basically right now what we have to do is rely on companies to self-report. Uh, the, the good news is that all of the consumer pressure, it is absolutely paying off. I was just looking, uh, watching the TV last night and actually saw a commercial from Amazon about how they will be, I think they're promising to go uh, to be climate neutral by 2040. And they say about all of the electric trucks they're going to order, I believe it's 100,000 or so. And like even in the numbers again you can see the crazy impact they will have and it's it's a positive one at least on this aspect but again uh, consumers pressure these companies to take a stand uh, very clearly you know amazon i i'm sorry to say that but i wouldn't expect them to do anything unless they really had to but they are self-reporting and an interesting part about apple and, you know, you can uh, have the same argument about many, many companies, including the fashion ones, too, is that in that um, Bloomberg article that I've read, they're actually pretty impressed about uh, uh, Apple's climate plan, right? But they're saying that although Apple's climate plan is impressive, there's still something missing. And the company is sticking to its main business model, right? This is always the challenge for any corporation. And the model is to sell even greater numbers of devices and providing money-making services on top of it. Uh, France, a few years ago, even Leva, Levid, is that the correct word? Uh, Basically, they fined Apple earlier this year for knowingly slowing down older iPhones with software updates. You know, I saw like a movie or TV show where there was a a funny skit where basically, you know, once you see, you know, the software update on Apple is coming, your iPhone just like completely breaks down, self-disintegrates. It's it's true, but it's crazy that it's legal and it's allowed. So, um, you know, no matter how amazing Apple's climate plan will be, uh, the I feel like the most impact will be coming from uh, more uh, changes to the core business model of this corporation. Is that correct? Uh, I'd say absolutely. Um, but it's really difficult, right? Because, you know, all of our industries, so many of them, whether it be fashion or um, consumer electronics or um, even tech, even things that are not physical products are kind of based on a uh, high level of usage, right? And that means multiple purchases. And we basically built our entire economies based on this. So we're going to have to come up with another approach. And these companies are going to have to come up with another business model where they can um, get more out of what they produce, right? Um, they can find some way of monetizing sharing, Um, and monetizing reuse. And I think nobody's really figured that out well yet. Um, But, but, you know, that's that's absolutely something that needs to change. And then I would say, you know, consumers can press pressure companies and they should continue to do so. They also need to pressure governments because as we've seen um, with things like child labor or even things like, um, um, you know, labor unions and their role uh, many, many, many years ago, we have to also make sure that government is engaged on this. And and I understand that this is interpreted differently in different parts of the world, but it's important that consumers do that too, right? Because we kind of need a multi-pronged approach, um, multi-stakeholder approach, if you will. Um, So in addition to pressuring the company, we need to also engage government as well to put in place smart rules and laws that discourage that type of behavior that you mentioned earlier. Absolutely. Um, Another company that I think we were interested to talk about too is um, Danone. So, um, you know, here in the States, we, a lot of times you just hear people call it Danon. (laughs) Um, But I think it's, hopefully I've got that pronunciation right. But, you know, we know this as, you know, our our standard yogurt company. Um, They also were involved in brands like Silk, the soy milk company. Um, They they do Horizon Organic, which I love that milk, Um, Wallaby Organic, soy milk. They're just like in all of the dairy and even alternative milks. So, uh, you know, 
they are trying, you know, they're on the path actually to becoming a certified B Corps by 2025 across all five of their operations. Um, interestingly enough, this is five years ahead of their original plan, which is really interesting. Um, you know, they are really focusing right now on the U.S., Spanish, and then Japanese markets. So um, I'm wondering if this is an example of a company actually putting, you know, its money where, where, where its mouth is. I would say so. I mean, I think that we're always naturally, especially with consumer products, a bit skeptical, right? Because, you know, they all have these kind of very complicated histories. So Danone is a company that also sells water. And if you know anything about consumer products, you know that the whole water sector in terms of sustainability has been really controversial over the last 20, 25 years or so in terms of accessing to water and whether the who has the rights to access water. Um, are they basically extracting in a non-responsible way um, natural resources? The whole plastics issue around bottles and bottled beverages, a huge issue. But all that being said, I would say that Danone definitely is an organization in that is clearly committed to this cause. Um, and I think what they're doing as well is they're really evolving um, more in the open discussion around what should a company be doing and who is who is the company responsible to. And they clearly are saying we're responsible not just to our shareholders, we're also responsible to society. And in terms of, of the B Corporation certification, it actually is emerging now as really the standard that we talked about earlier for these companies that are putting profits and um, as this concept of triple bottom line was saying many, many years ago, John Elkington was kind of the founder of that concept of putting profitability and purpose and people and planet kind of all on the same plane. Um, and the B Corporation certification aspires to do that. I should say that actually it's been around for many, many, many years. It has 3000 companies that are considered B Corporations. And the progress process is actually pretty rigorous. They give every company a sustainability score, but it takes them a lot of time actually to achieve this certification. Danon has achieved it for North America, um, for the US and North America. Um, for Japan most recently, which actually was a real big first tier, there are B corporations in Japan, but nothing, no one of the sales scale is, as Danon. And also I think Spain and maybe a couple other markets. And interestingly, not yet France, which is Danon's home market, <laughs> should say. Um, but I, I'd say that they are really trying to get there in terms of, of becoming the type of organization that I think many of us are, are looking for um, in a large uh, multi multinational. Yeah, absolutely. And I think to B Corps, you know, that's that's a um, topic that we've talked about a little bit on the podcast previously. And, you know, from a company's perspective, yes, like, We've heard that it's difficult to get that certification. Um, you know, used to be. I know um, the the B Corps certification has been around for a while. I do know that um, you know at one point it was very much a negative um, for investors. You know, if you were going to go to your board and say, "Hey, we're really we want to do right by the planet. We want to become a B Corps." Well, oftentimes investors would say, "Well, no, because it's going to cost money and it's going to you know not be great for your shareholders." And so. I'm really encouraged by the trend of companies who have decided to take that first step and at least, you know, start applying for the process when they know full and well it's going to take a while. So good, you know, kudos to Danone for, for really doing that. I think that's great. Yeah. And I, we have to mention too, that as hard, as difficult as it is, the B Corp certification for smaller startups to do the certification on this massive scale, you know, it's, I don't know to what degree of difficulty and complexity it gets. Um, you know, as you, as you mentioned there across multiple countries, you, you know, God knows how many suppliers and supply chains they have. So it's, um, you know, big, big kudos uh, to Danone. Um, and also one of the reasons why I've, uh, um, I love the, um, I, we in Russian, it's Danone. I don't know if it's yes, French it's word. French is Danone. Danone. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I will mispronounce it in some language. Um, but yeah, I've been a fan of them, well, both as a consumer of their yogurt since childhood, but also 
Um, of course, uh, our huge, we are huge fans of Muhammad Yunus here, and he actually, in his book, Creating a World Without Poverty, he gave a specific example of Danon um, when it was promoting, uh, helping him promote his idea of social business, and actually they had a joint venture, Danon and Grameen Bank, the Bangladeshi um, microfinance bank that uh, you know he got the Nobel uh, Prize for. They had a joint venture, and I think that was back in the early 2000s. So, uh, you know, but you can see how long it takes a company that was kind of uh, sold on, on this idea of social business, doing business for good back in the early 2000s with, you know, one of the biggest proponents and the earliest proponents of social business. And they're still just kind of finalizing the big corporation for, you know, for the full company. It does take time. But again, uh, we will we say here planet over perfection. So we love and imperfect brands who are transparent enough to tell us that you know the process is difficult they're not perfect but they're trying to move forward with this um anyway switching the gears a little bit um i've met we i also asked our community um if you're new to our podcast to these conversations when i say scouts uh we actually mean our brightly scouts ambassadors and that's what i mostly mean by our community when we just started planning this episode we actually asked our community for some interesting examples of big brands uh doing things right uh in terms of sustainability and we had a few examples i've briefly mentioned them to you and trista feel free to jump in uh, whenever you want and interrupt me because I know you might have some interesting uh, details on this. So, for example, Rowena, that was a, probably the most surprising example for me. She said, I've been impressed by Lego recently. They plan to have all their packaging be sustainable by 2025. And they're working hard to create fossil fuel-free bricks in the future. Have you heard anything about that? Um, yes, actually. Um, Lego is a really interesting company obviously for for many many reasons a company that's also very close to um everyone's heart really everybody kind of glows up with lego and not just you know in the developed world but we, we kind of find it everywhere um there's some other kind of interesting facts around um lego they're they're moving to 100 percent full uh, sustainability by 2030 again that 2030 number uh target date rather um and one thing that's interesting as well is that um apparently a lot of this shift and this is really underlying a lot of we've discussed this far is a change in terms of the consumer mindset and as millennials age <laughs> Um, now the kind of oldest millennials, I believe, are like 37 or 38 um, and have children. They're bringing these values around better business um, into their purchasing decisions. And this is even more so for Generation Z um, moms and dads, you know, so um, they're absolutely responding to that um, as well. It's not like these companies are doing this just because this is a good thing to do. They're doing it because I think they sense the way the market is shifting. And the first place we see a lot of this is with people's children. You know, when they have children, sometimes they really want to, you know, there's this idea of care and, and uh, making sure that they have the best. And this is really starting to be wrapped up in the idea of sustainability and better business and better products that are good for the planet and good for us. So I would say um, that's also a big driver as well. And then the last thing is Lego is, I believe, a Danish company, I think. Um, and, um, you know, I, we interviewed a company for our book called Novo Nordisk, which is a pharmaceutical company, which was one of the first companies to really talk about sustainability on, in the pharma world. Um, and there is a strong cultural aspect to this, particularly in Northern Europe and particularly in Denmark. It's, it's a very kind of multi-stakeholder consensual type of country. And so this idea of making sure we take into account the needs, um, and interests, um, of all of our stakeholders is very much a part of how they think as a society as well. So I don't think that that's necessarily separate from also their decisions um, as companies as well. It's also not important not to forget the cultural aspect. Thanks so much for listening. We'll get back to today's episode in just a second, but we wanted to take a break to recognize a few companies that we've partnered with. Right now, there are thousands of ethical brands out there which can be confusing and overwhelming. This is why Brightly exists. We are your guide to doing good in the world through conscious consumerism. We personally vet and try products from every single brand that we partner with, both on our podcast and on our platform, brightly.eco, so that you don't have to do the research yourself. 
Partnerships like these are what helps Brightly and our community grow and increase our impact. Thank you. Laura, you've probably heard me talk all the time about my love for sheets and giggles. I've been sleeping on their new sustainable eucalyptus sheets for the past three months straight. I recommend them a thousand percent. Every week I wash them and put them back on the bed right away. They're my go-to sheets. All of my other sheets, even the ethical ones, are taking a long break. After hearing you rave about them for so long, I finally got to try their new eucalyptus comforter. I'm a weirdo, I really like having a comforter on my bed all the time, even in the middle of the summer, and I haven't been waking up hot when I've been using this one from Sheets and Giggles. It's a great ethical and sustainable alternative to the down one we used to use that's now sitting on our guest bed. Another thing I love about Sheets and Giggles is that they don't use plastic packaging and their materials don't use pesticides, so they're kind to our animal and insect friends. They also plant a tree for each sheet set that is sold, and they are passionate about giving back. They give 10% off to their customers who donate their old sheets to homeless shelters and have donated over $40,000 to Colorado COVID relief. That's awesome. Good Together listeners get 15% off at checkout by using the code BRIGHTLY at sheetsgiggles.com. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, cult, I think it just makes it easier, right? It's kind of more ingrained in you. As you you're absolutely right. You know, if you're most of your consumers are moms, uh, and uh, you know they control the budgets and a lot of uh, purchasing decisions in the family, uh, that 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 makes a huge deal. Um, so another one, another example from our community, Lisa Marie, uh, she uh, mentioned Adidas, right? Um, they said she said they have recycled ocean plastic sneakers. Um, it's not every product, but it's a great start. I do have to give them another shout out uh they did just uh come together uh came out with um our favorite sneaker company, Allbirds, with a joint uh, kind of co-branded sneakers as well. So kudos uh, to them for this. Anything else that you know of uh, on the Adidas front? Yes, I actually have an interesting story about this this particular product. So firstly, um, it's made from recycled products, bottles, but I understand not completely. So certain parts of the shoe are not recyclable, right? So that creates an issue. So the, so the large question is really um, what happens to that shoe at the end of its life? So it uses... Um, uh, uses plastic bottles in order uh, in order to, to to create it, but at the end of that, like, can we take the components of that shoe and remake a shoe? And that's something that I know Adidas is is absolutely trying to grapple with at the moment. They're looking to go to 100% recycled materials across the shoe. I actually do um, um, trainings, some trainings around um, sustainability here in Japan, and one of the exercises we did was an exercise called "Is it sustainable?" and so we or how sustainable is it so we had participants in the training rank on um, the level of one to ten how sustainable they think it is and what we wanted them to do was think about questions like uh what are they and we think about in the circular economy what are the loops we call them the loops and every product goes through multiple loops they have one loop that's the first shoe second loop if we can kind of extract some of the shoe remake it, the second loop, what happens at the end of its life after the second loop, the third loop, et cetera, et cetera. So we wanted the participants to think about this, about you know what happens to this shoe over time. And this is a really important thing, I think, for consumers to think about when they look at these types of products. It's really great to have these products as a first step. Absolutely, it's way better than nothing. And it helps solve uh, a problem uh, in terms of ocean plastics, which is a massive issue. But we also have to think about the entire life cycle of the product and what sustainability means. And that's yeah, absolutely. Thinking more about um, you know the terms circular economy, um, and we actually have an upcoming episode. Um, actually, well, by the time this one airs, <laughs> uh, the circular economy episode will have aired. But yes, really fascinating. We kind of break down really the true life cycle of a product, and you know, I for one learned a ton, um, and it's definitely something worth considering as some of these more sort of partially recycled products come out. Super interesting. Um, you know, we were talking about Danone. Now we're talking about um, Lisa talked a little bit about how you know mothers sometimes are the ones making the purchasing decisions. You know, specifically in the household. Um, I actually, this is super random, but Netflix started um, letting folks watch this old 80s uh, game show called Supermarket Sweep. Um, Everybody's been talking about that on Twitter. And uh, I started watching it the other day. And it's just like, for me, it's fascinating because it's very obviously like all sponsored content, like every single brand that appears in that show 
they like say the brand name like five times and it's like very, very um, ingrained into everybody's brain. And I think one brand that I haven't seen on Supermarket Sweep yet, <laughs> um, but I think would very well fit in there is Driscoll's. Uh, Driscoll's here, you know, in the States is very big in terms of, uh, you know, fresh produce. And I think as we as consumers navigate the supermarket shelves and, and think about um, produce and all the different uh, labels and things of that of nature available, one of our Brightly Scouts mentioned that Driscoll specifically has started to um, have organic and fair trade options available um, as you walk down that supermarket aisle. And, you know, they've got the certifications sort of front and center on packaging. Now, granted, I personally wish they'd get rid of some of those plastic clamshells. So maybe they're working on that. Um, but they also have a really nice page on their website talking about um, how they respect their workforce, et cetera. So Wanted to give a shout out to Driscoll's because I think that's awesome. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I think that organics and natural, these two concepts and these ideas are in many ways were the first, um, I would say, uh, words that people could use to articulate what is a better brand? What is, does sustainability mean? I think it's evolving a bit beyond that. Um, so, so absolutely, it's great that they take that step. And I think it's really interesting that they talk about their workers and respect for their workers as well, because in the agricultural sector, that's a massive issue and a huge problem, um, particularly um, in emerging markets, but also in developed markets, we see issues as well in the U.S. and Europe um, as well. Um, one th question that I have is always been a question for me is kind of this organic, what are organics, right? So um, legally, what are organics and what the U.S. DA says are organics and what many different um, governmental bodies see around the world isn't actually organic often the way the consumer interprets it, right? So they're supposed to use as much as they can natural techniques in the growing um, and harvesting and picking, et cetera, process. Um, but it's not necessarily 100% um, purely organic or pure as we think we would like to think of it in, in the consumer's mind. So sometimes these things can be misleading. Um, so it's important for, for, for consumers to, to dig a little bit um, when those terms are used, as they would um, for any other uh, type of sustainability concepts. Exactly. Yeah, we've covered that before. We've had an um, episode on kind of different certifications that consumers should be aware. And, you know, just the variety in the sheer number of the certifications, it's already cons uh, confusing and overwhelming, unfortunately. Uh, what we are trying to do at Brightfield, right, is make sustainability less overwhelming by kind of simplifying the information. I mean, if you do have time on your hand to do all of the research, that's amazing. I think uh, no matter what you do, uh, if you're starting, you have to do at least some level of research. I think that's a given. Uh, but my hope is for big companies, for companies like Brightly and kind of consumer brands, uh, we do have to do a better job in terms of, well, changing, like having systematic solutions, right, that you've just talked about. One of the most important kind of, most important and most popular questions we always talk about is recycling. And it always blows my mind how confused I am still <laughs> every time I have to recycle something. And our com uh, community who are also very well versed in sustainability to some extent, uh, as confused as we are. So we definitely, I think on the system level, we have to make things um, much more simple. And we're quite a few years away from uh, having sustainability be as simple as we'd like it to be. Uh, so one of our last questions on, on, on the main topic uh, is probably one of the most important ones, right? Uh, it's about the validity of this so-called sustainability efforts. Are any of this real or is it just clever marketing? Our scouts um, mentioned also how full Coca-Cola's website is of sustainability info and how cool it is to see that Amer American Eagle is launching a real good collection. It's the name of the collection. <laughs> um, uh, they say it's made of sustainable uh, raw materials and um, which are reducing water and energy uses too. We've recently, unfortunately, learned that Everlane's radical transparency may not be neither radical nor transparent, and the list goes on and on and on. So my question is, how can we as consumers be acute to this endless marketing smokescreens and be able to tell uh, truly what brands are sustainable and what are not. I know it's a very loaded question. There's no kind of short answer to this, but what can we do kind of to the best of our ability? 
Yes, this is absolutely right that this is a very difficult question. Um, I would say, first of all, um, I think it's important for com for consumers to look at the company, right? What have they been doing for much of their existence? Right? So we've had conversations on this call about Danone, and you mentioned um, working with Grameen Bank many, many years ago. Um, and, you know, so it's been a journey for them. Most of these companies are on a journey. It's going to take time. And as I mentioned earlier, they're focusing around a certain part of their business. Maybe they haven't extended across their whole organization. Um, but I think you have to look at the authenticity of the company as a whole, right? So we have companies like Patagonia and Ben and & Jerry's and um, more recently, a recent success story, Method Home, for example, um, companies that were really structured and built and found around it, founded around the concept of sustainability. And I think we need to probably understand who those companies are. We need to, we've actually profiled several of them in our book, and we need to support those companies, right? Because I think for me, those companies, it's embedded in their values. It's not a marketing smokescreen. For the other companies, I would say, again, you know, really dig into those brands, um, see what they're doing, uh, and again, a lot of them are starting to publish more information around um, those products, where they came from, who their suppliers are. We see this, for example, in, in the fashion industry a lot, um, particularly companies like H&M. They're more transparent now around who their contract manufacturers are. You can go on their site and see actually where their, their, their clothing is produced and made. Um, and again, we talked about certifications. Um, and yes, I understand there's many of them that are complicated, but there are certain ones that have really done better over time. So certainly the fair trade label, certainly as we mentioned, B Corporation, um, Rainforest Alliance um, in, in tea. So I think that those are good um, signals for, for consumers and they can look at them at least as a guide. But the truth is, is that we all have to do our homework. And certainly podcasts such as uh, Good Together and also there's lots of really great online publications. Green Biz, for example, is a great online publication. It's more business oriented, but they talk about what companies are doing all the time. Um, it, it takes work, you know, and, and unfortunately, we're all constrained on time. And and I absolutely understand that. But it's something that we as, as consumers also have to take the responsibility to dig a bit more on ourselves. Yep, absolutely. We talk about this a lot on the podcast, but you know, the, one of the first things you can do as a consumer is just get curious and, and start to dig in yourself and, and take that first step. And so we know it's challenging. We know there's so many nuances, but you know, look, taking that first step to look into what's going on is, is just so important. Um, so this has been so helpful. We've learned so much about all these different brands. Um, one of the things we like to do on the podcast is kind of close out the episodes with a few different um, questions that we like to ask all of our guests. So um, Trista, I wonder if you could give us um, one or two actionable tips on living ethically every day. Sure. Um, I think the first one I, I like to talk about because I was a convert to this, um, and that that's basically buying vintage, and particularly in terms of clothing and accessories and that type of thing. My sister is, I have two sisters, and one of them is a real fashionista, so she was the one who could go into, we used to call vintage stores thrift shops when I was young. That uh, shows kind of how old I am, I guess. <laughs> but um, And she could go find anything incredibly beautiful and fashionable in those shops. Now those shops are incredible. You know, they have beautiful things. They're well-designed. They're well-laid out. And I, I feel that, you know, why buy new stuff all the time? There's lots of great old stuff we can buy. So I think that's the first tip that I would have. Um, and then the second thing I think is really important is reading. And I think reading books about sustainability and not just mine, obviously, there's many great ones. Um, one just came out by John Elkington called Green Swans, which kind of reimagines a different, future in terms of what business um, and companies can look like. And that's more on the business side. Um, there's also lots of books um, out there starting to come out around what consumers can do and have, giving tips about how we can shop better, how we can live better, how we can reuse what we have better um, and just, just be better citizens to the planet. And then also, I think, encouraging children to read too about this topic from a young age, because that's really where our value system starts. Um, and even in terms of ideas like human human rights um, in the U.S., certainly at the moment, the Black Lives Matter movement um, and the, the movement for um, equity and justice is is really a, an incredibly important topic at the moment. Um, there's a great book for kids called Never Caught um, by Ona Judge. There's a book for adults and a book for, for kids. It's about Ona Judge, who is a woman who was um, a slave and her story and that type of thing. And I think those books really sensitize um, young people 
to human rights and issues about um, life and people and planet. Um, and so I would really encourage people to read as well, because for me and my journey, that's been really important. These are great tips. Yeah, definitely uh, reading is uh, so, so important. And I think uh, a lot of folks are finding more time um, these days to read because of thanks to COVID, uh, silver lining. So we're looking for them uh, everywhere we go. Well, so our next question that we like to ask our guests uh, is about your favorite ethical brands. Can you give us, I know you have such an interesting international perspective. So give us a few examples of your favorite ethical brands. Sure. One of them, which I love, um, is a company, um, and we mentioned them in the book, it's called Ricci Every Day. And it's a small Japanese handbag company. And the thing that's really interesting about them is they produce the handbags in Uganda. And the women who work um, in the factory are not only paid a decent wage, the founder also commits to pay for their health care and also to pay for their retirement. So give them some money to, to save for the retirement. This is something that I found incredible because you rarely find um, companies that do that in emerging markets, right? Uh, they're obligated to do that in developed markets, but they're not necessarily doing so in emerging markets. I think that's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Another company which actually just IPO'd, which is interesting, um, is Lemonade, which is an insurance company. And um, insurance insurers, if you know anything about insurance, you know, the whole model is about not paying you. So <laughs> you pay money every month um, and, you know, they make their money based on people never actually uh, making a claim or never actually when they do one, not actually paying it, you know, and that's why insurance companies have a lot of money. Um, but Lemonade is taking a different approach and they actually donate um, their profits to charity. I, and they're also a B Corp, which is really interesting. I've kind of happened upon this company more recently, but just to show you that sustainability doesn't necessarily apply to just physical products and also can apply to services as well. And then the last company, which I profit found the book, is Keen, which is the footwear company, which a lot of people may know. Um, why do I think it's an incredible company? Um, it, uh, from an innovation perspective, they not only have great design shoes, um, activewear shoes, they also don't innovate um, in an unsustainable way. So they will hold off on doing things like, for example, putting in place a, um, a new um, new sealant on their shoe until they make sure that it won't harm the environment. They also encourage their staff to be engaged on these issues. And they do things like they have a booth in their office where people can call their Congress people, for example. They're really focused on conservation and they want their employee base to, to be so as well. So I think they're a really fascinating company because um, they really strive to, in every aspect of what they do, to put to sustainability at the core. That's awesome. I mean, you love it when you hear the company putting sustainable practices um, to use across, you know, across the entire business. I think, you know, a lot of times people think it's just environmental related um, initiatives um, and they, they, they leave sort of workers' rights and things out of that. But so that that's so great to hear. Um, so the last question that we have for you is, is always my favorite question, which is what excites you the most about the ethical and sustainable movement right now? There is, in my opinion, a level of innovation around this concept that we've never seen. It's really a revolution, actually. If you look at the tech sector, the 2000s um, through 2010, you had an incredible amount of innovation. And now you're seeing sustainable innovation. You're seeing this concept of sustainability really permeating everything. So it is not just in one sector, um, but, you know, fashion, there's an incredible number of sustainable brands to the extent where you don't really need to buy from Gap or Zara or even H&M. You can actually buy a lot of really great, now well-priced uh, sustainable fashion brands. Cosmetics, uh, food alone has had incredible um, innovations uh, over the last uh, few years, and that's going to absolutely continue. Um, and it's also global as well. This isn't something that's confined to the U.S. or Europe. We're seeing in a lot of emerging markets a lot of really wonderful, um, sustainable brands as well. Um, and, and yeah, I can understand that it's probably a little bit chaotic and messy for the consumer at the moment because you have all this choice. What do I do? But that this this is about, you know, and, and many of those companies will go on to be bought by larger companies. And that's what happens. That's normal and healthy. And they may help transform those larger companies. Um, but I think we're at a time, I think we're really at an inflection point in terms of what the future products and services um, will look like in the types of companies um, that will be buying things from.
Awesome. That's that's a great uh, um, ending to for our podcast and for our discussion. And as you mentioned, um, I, I love that point that you know it's normal for smaller uh, sustainable businesses to be uh, bought by bigger companies. I think there were some concerns before, uh, you know, that there is a chance that you will lose your authenticity, your focus on sustainability uh, if you're bought by a corporation that is you know solely focused on profits. But again, it's thanks to you. To to consumers that players like Amazon and Apple and L'Oreal and Danone that we've mentioned uh, in today's podcast, they are actually investing serious, serious money and resources, uh, you know, in the climate change, uh, in the fight for, you know, justice, for, you know, uh, poverty alleviation and all the other important, important topics. So I'm, uh, if anything, I'm, I'm very inspired and I'm, I'm really kind of more hopeful after today's episode than I've, I was before. Um, so Tristan, <laughs> yeah, before you, uh, we let you go, uh, can you tell our readers, uh, sorry, your, re- your future readers, our listeners, where they can find uh, your book and if uh, they can follow you online, if you want to mention that too? Oh, sure, of course. So um, uh, everyone knows when we talked about Amazon, you can find every book on Amazon. So <laughs> you go right to uh, Amazon and try to type in Leading Sustainably. I don't even think you need to type the path to sustainable business part, but you'll be able to find us. Um, I wrote the book, I should say, in conjunction with a gentleman named Donald Eubank. Um, and so you'll find us both, um, both online. Um, and then um, I believe it's going to be carried um, in other book uh, booksellers as well, particularly those focusing on business. So you can certainly find it find it there. Um, and online, um, the best way to, to locate me is via Read the Air. Uh, we have we're on Instagram. We're also obviously on LinkedIn. Um, certainly, it's important for the business community uh, and Twitter as well. So, um, so please, please do feel re- feel to reach out to me um, at any point uh, with any questions or even ideas. Thank you so much, Teresa. It was great having you. you. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Good Together. As always, you can get show notes and explore lots more content related to all things eco-friendly living by checking out brightly.eco slash podcast. And don't forget to join in on the conversation that's happening on our Facebook group. Simply search Good Together Ethical Shopping and it'll come up. You can also leave us a question through voicemail. The link is on brightly.eco slash podcast. If you're into social media, give us a follow on Instagram, Facebook, and all of the channels. Our username is brightly.eco. Finally, we want to leave you with a reminder. Every day is a chance for you to create change, and you're already covered for today since you joined us here on the podcast. Stay kind and live brightly.